Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have a very special episode for you. We have Jean of the podcast That's Ancient History, and this is part one of our two-part crossover episodes. I love these bonus weeks in the month because we get to talk to such interesting people and do such fun things. Yes, and I have been a fan of Jean's booktube channel for a long time. So when I found out she was taking her PhD studies in ancient uh, culture, particularly, uh, I think, 4th century Greece, and turning that into a podcast about antiquity, I was just so incredibly happy. (laughs) She's so smart and so fun to talk to. And really, I mean, I'm not as much into ancient myths as you are, but talking to her (laughs) really gets me excited about it. So. Yeah, she's a great advocate for uh, mythology and how the classics, as in the ancient classics, not like the 1800s classics, the classic classics uh, are still important for today's society and culture and is an advocate for studying them in like high school and earlier so that you can get a general idea of what they're about and more than just Disney's Hercules, you know, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Or or Troy, or whatever movie you're watching. <laughs> right. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Jean. So Jean, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we get into our discussion, um, would you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your podcast and what you talk about there? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, So my podcast is called That's Ancient History, (laughs) Um, which I hope is somewhat (laughs) self-explanatory. But what I'm going with with the podcast is sort of trying to make classics and antiquity accessible, kind of explore the history of ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Perhaps we'll go beyond that, but, you know, that's that's where we've gone so far. <laughs> um, but also kind of look at the way that it's relevant to d- today, so kind of how it's permeated throughout our culture throughout the past, like, centuries and even into, like, well, like, relevant is modern literature and just kind of how it's something that's actually kind of all around us and how everybody can enjoy and appreciate it, or at least that's what I'm hoping is coming across from the podcast. So you're sort of like the Rick Riordan series for podcasts? I love it. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly that. Yep, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've told you guys this already, but I just love Rick Riordan and how he does that. And I didn't study for a test as much as I should have, but I didn't need to because it was just like, what god is the god of the sky and thunder? And you're like, Zeus. Like. I think sometimes you store information the best if you sort of learn it in a fun, enjoyable pop culture type way. <laughs> That's so true. So as bookish souls here on the podcast, we talk obviously a lot about uh, women writers and women writing fiction, but mythology plays a big role in the storytelling and the tropes that we have. What books, Dean, do you think come to mind to you when you think of that and like books that might really rely heavily on mythology well I mean I'm a massive fan of myth retellings like I love classical myth retellings it's one of the ways that I really got into classics and ancient history more than anything else like again it's just sort of 
pop culture inspired that love for me and reading things like Margaret Atwood's Penelope Ad, which is obviously like it's a very overt myth retelling. It's about Odysseus's wife, Penelope, telling their story from her perspective as opposed to Odysseus as in the Odyssey. Um, And like books like that just inspired a lot of my passion and love for antiquity. I, I love the sort of modern retellings of myths and whether they're set in contemporary times or ancient times, they can kind of give voice to characters that don't have as strong a voice in the ancient work, kind of explore their perspective. So you mentioned that retellings were one of the first things that got you into classics and, and stories from antiquity. What what age was that? And was there anything in particular that really drew you to classics? I mean, I had, just from a really early age, what read a lot of Asterix comic books and watched a lot of Xena Warrior Princess and <laughs> like really like properly inaccurate but great fun like ancient pop culture in, in the modern day and I, I loved it all and then I loved going to museums and uh, watching documentaries about the Egyptians on the television um, but I think sort of when I was a teenager I started reading more of these kind of more literary adult retellings of myths so like sort of were quite although they're modern books they're very introspective on so they can explore things like gender roles and feminism and the female voice through an ancient story where those things aren't the primary focus where women haven't got as strong a voice as as men do in these stories and they can explore both the way women were more overlooked in antiquity but also by playing on modern day themes and they make those stories very relevant to today. They sort of show you kind of how a lot of these like stereotypes and stigmas like existed before and exist now and kind of use that story as like a way to explore them. If that makes sense. And it kind of like yeah. opened up like my eyes to this sort of, and even now I study actual ancient literature. I feel like I've got this perspective on it because I, I try to think about it in this open way that I think modern literature has helped me do if that makes sense (laughs) yeah it's crazy like you're talking about the shows that you watched as a kid and how pop culture affected your interest in classic Mm. lit there's a show we have here I don't know if it's over there but um called wishbone that came on like public television (laughs) and like that was my introduction to like Dante and a lot of like Greek myths and even a lot of Shakespeare and stuff and Wilkie Collins and like all these like really hard stories and then when I became an adult like those are the some of the first stories that I gravitated to because I was familiar with them and then I read them and I was like wait a minute this is nothing like (laughs) (laughs) this is nothing like (laughs) but it's crazy like how just that introduction really does open doors that I think otherwise like you know if you just pick up I don't know the tempest it might be really hard to read Mm -hmm. but or you might not pick it up but seeing it in pop culture I think makes it a lot more accessible yeah and people can be so precious about the classics um whether it's actual classical literature or just sort of like classics from the past few centuries and sort of remaining accurate and true to the original stories and actually I think sometimes giving them that new lease of life is beneficial to them it's like it's it's necessary and it's it's quite clever Mm. 
Yeah, and Jean, when we were talking about preparing for this, you mentioned that the like, for example, Hong Hong Kong's vegetarian is a retelling of Daphne yes. and Apollo, which I didn't realize until you told me. Which is it makes so much yes. more like sense now. Not that it didn't make sense before, but yes. like, oh, it clicks, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was one of those ones where I didn't know the vegetarian by Han Kang, which is South Korean novel, was based on the Daphne and Apollo myth, which you can read in Ovid's Metamorphosis until somebody else told me and I'd already read the book and the book was this beautiful contemplative literary journey in itself but then as soon as I was told that it's like it gave the the book this whole extra layer of meaning it kind of explained where she's she had got some of the ideas from like the the protagonist kind of desire to turn into a tree because in the myth of Daphne and Apollo Apollo is trying to sexually assault Daphne and she prays to the gods and they turn her into a tree so that she doesn't have to be sexually assaulted um yeah it just sort of like it's one of those things where it's like you can you can take an ancient myth and it means your audience doesn't need to be familiar with that myth and you can still create this amazing story but then if you get to read if you read on and you kind of explore kind of the inspiration um, behind the author's story you get all this extra meaning and I'm sure I mean I'm pretty sure that Han Kang studied classics at some point in her like educational journey um, somewhere. You know I read too for the first time this year Frankenstein by Mary Shelley mm. because it was the 200th anniversary I didn't know anything about Frankenstein except for what I'd seen in movies and stuff which is nothing like the book but I like I read the book and then afterwards I was reading about it and realized that the subtitle was a modern Prometheus mm. and then I was reading about the Prometheus Prometheus story and it's exactly what you just said where it was like okay Frankenstein is an interesting story on its own but then when you layer on it the story of Prometheus I was like whoa this is so cool like how she drew from that story and it just adds a whole other level of meaning that I just didn't even know existed yeah it's so exciting I actually only read Frankenstein for the first time this year as well oh, wow. I, I bought the 1818 edition as well because I was like I want to read the original text oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, because it's the anniversary, so it's a good, perfect time for that as well. Now, I remember I, I, my mom started elementary school. She started, we started history from, like, you know, the cradle of life and Mesopotamia and whatever. So we started, like, from the beginning of civilization and moved forward. So I was always familiar with the myths. I really loved Egyptian mythology. But then, obviously, Percy Jackson came onto the scene and stuff like Wishbone. And there was one with, like, a bison telling stories to kids also on PBS. Oh, um... The Book of Virtue. Something, yeah. And there were like these little cassette tapes you got in Happy Meals and stuff. And it would be these stories like on audio. And so I really love that. But then my first week of university, I saw Antigone Mm. uh, performed and I just loved it. And it was a new lease on life of what these myths actually are as an adult. Because, of course, I'd always read like the cleansed versions <laughs> kid-friendly versions yes the kid-friendly versions like the disney hercules <laughs> yes basically yeah. right i just love and then like learning more about that and of course when you read study literature it's like mythology in the bible and that's like all the excitement yeah exactly so, so it's like even shakespeare it's just full of references to characters from greek and roman history and mythology and once you know that it's like oh extra information 
Yeah, it's like the history of storytelling. I always feel like my we had a, took a classics class our senior year, and our teacher was always telling us, these are the foundations for modern Western literature. You need to know this so that you will then not be lost later when you read like contemporary things. That's so true. It, it, it really is. There's so, so much like have a episode coming up in the second season in a couple of months with, with a friend of mine that's all about classics and early modern theatre so Shakespeare but also other playwrights from that sort of time period and just like all the inspiration they took from ancient literature and ancient history. Yeah I think it's amazing when you think about uh, Autumn and I studied the modern era a lot in grad school and so you think Ulysses itself is a retelling of the Odyssey Mm -hmm. and then Virginia Woolf was like well you know, Joyce, you're kind of obsessed with your own masculinity. So why don't I write Mrs. Dalloway and actually talk about a woman? And so you think about it, she got there from the Odyssey. Yeah, totally. And like, I do feel like these stories do belong to everybody. You know, in antiquity, there was no set versions either. Like every every sort of town or city or country had its own versions and its own cults. And just as much as they retold them and authors changed them for the stage or for their poetry, then like, why shouldn't modern authors as well? I I mean, I'm all here for that. I mean, you have Jeanette Winterson (laughs) and Margaret Atwood doing retellings. I'm just like, please sign me up. Just hand them over. (laughs) And I just, I haven't read it yet, but I just got sent a copy of The Mere Wife, which is a retelling of Beowulf. And I had to read part of Beowulf in school and hated it, quite honestly. So I'm interested even to read that because it's like, oh, I wonder how that will change my perspective of even that story with this new modern retelling. Yeah, I heard of that one. I'm super excited for it to be released. I'm like, I think I might do a like Beowulf read and then get a copy and sort of read it all side by side. <laughs> that would be, I would be fascinated to see that because I don't know if I'm ready to tackle Beowulf myself. But <laughs> <laughs> I've been putting Beowulf off and I think this is why I'm like, now that there's this retelling coming, I'm like, okay, Jean, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> you have an incentive. I, I, yeah. I feel that. <laughs> make that thing then we'll all read Beowulf (laughs) oh Oh my goodness I'm gonna get the spark notes okay what just happened (laughs) exactly Um, one of the books we wanted to talk to you about too is Salvage the Bones by Justin Ward which everyone who listens to this podcast knows is one of our most favorite books of all time Um, and you're the reason you guys are the reason I read it as well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, so like we would love to hear what you thought about that book and the Greek mythological references in there. I well, I lo- I loved it. I loved that there were so many things loved about the story. I loved that the story wasn't a direct retelling. I thought it was kind of nice actually to see the way that myth had been woven into the story without it being like the plot of Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> like that was really nice and really creative. I loved that the main character, who is this young girl growing up in the American South is, isn't it? Yeah, Mississippi Delta, yeah. Okay, (laughs) yes, so Mississippi, and um, she's this, like, ordinary young girl growing up in in Mississippi, and she's fascinated by the classics, and she is passionate about the classics and these myths, and she's able to find uh, themes in those myths that she can relate to her own life, because, I mean, that reminds me of me being a teenager, because I was obsessed with mythology, and just sort of also not, like, that typical person you associate with the classics, who is the sort of, like, 
rich white man (laughs) that has been in charge of the classical studies for centuries and that I really liked and I love how it was sort of like these stories were as as much belonged to her as anybody else and she kind of Mm -hmm. used them to explore her own life and I I think like also being familiar with the myth of Medea and Jason um, not only was she sort of like relating her story to Medea and Jason I really liked that it also kind of added this sort of like I don't know if sinister is the right word but sinister undertone because I know that Jason and Medea's story does not end well yeah. <laughs> and I know that just like it all like is pretty tragic for quite a long time for Medea um so kind of knowing that kind of made me sense that perhaps things weren't all going to be perfect for her mm-hmm. um I don't know yeah. <laughs> that was kind of what made me feel like yeah drew up those kind of thoughts for me and so Medea is the one where she cooks up her kids and feeds them to him does she? No, she doesn't feed them to him, I don't think, Medea. She does kill them, but I don't she think... She just kills she, them. I, I think she just kills them. <laughs> I was like, oh, but there are, there are two plays of, of Medea, right? Uh, well, actually, so actually, there might be a version where she feeds them, because there's also versions where she doesn't kill them, which oh. is interesting, which is not like the more popular versions that we talk about today. But Euripides Medea, which is sort of the most popular one, she does kill them, but I don't think she feeds them. Okay. But yeah, there are other versions, and I'm sure there's a Roman version of the play, but then there are also older versions where she doesn't kill her children, the townspeople oh. kill her children after she oh. kills the king and the princess. So it's oh. all like... Oh, <laughs> that's when really did interesting. Become a child murderer. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of. I feel like there's a lot of people killing children to get back at the parents, and then usually, they're, I mean, not usually, but they're often involving eating and. Oh, yeah, Philomela. There's, um, I think, the relatives of like Agamemnon. Some of his ancestors did that as well. Yeah, it happens all the time. But I thought this was like sort of recently was reading some stuff about revenge um, in mythology in the ancient world. And I thought this is sort of like an interesting point is sort of so sort of the best way to take revenge on a man is to sort of either sort of like sterilize him in some way so he can't have any more children. Um, and if he already has children, kill his children because sort of his lineage is his power and it's his future and his children. Um, so like that's sort of the best. So that's the way women get revenge on men. So then when you're in the circumstance where it's actually your husband, who's like the father of your children, it gets like really messy and complicated. Because oh, you've got, yeah, you've got myths where women kill the children of men that they're not related to, but they're taking revenge for somebody. And in that circumstance, you don't really feel like they've done something as horrific because it's not also their child, but then it gets like super uncivilized and crazy when it's their children as well. But it's actually kind of like a typical thing to do in a way. Wow. (laughs) That's really interesting. (laughs) It is. And like in a strange way, I I see like, oh, okay, now that sort of makes sense because men are such... (laughs) virile sexual beings in mythology like obsessively to Mm -hmm. an extent which we'll talk about we'll talk about later uh but back to esh and how she loves medea i was like oh medea that's a strange motherhood figure to pull upon because in the very beginning of the book we discover that esh is pregnant she's like what 14 or 15 and she, her mom died, so she doesn't have a motherhood figure to, like, figure out how to be a mom. So out the entire book, she's trying to discover, like, what does being a mom look like? And so mm-hmm. she's pulling on mythology. Uh, for our listeners, you haven't, haven't read uh, Salvage the Bones. But there's also a, a pit bull that her brother has who has puppies in the very, like, beginning of the book. And so it follows, like, she's also, like, the parallel with the dog and Ash in motherhood and 
Yeah. So, and the Medea. So it's like all these things thrown together. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's sort of like an odd example to grow up, to draw on for motherhood. But it did kind of make sense in the terms of kind of her like young infatuated love with the, the boy that had got her pregnant. Because mm-hmm. that kind of does resemble Medea's love for Jason in that sense. It's sort of like the hopeful beginnings. Yeah. Well, even like the fact that in the story, it's like right before a hurricane or there's like this hurricane on the horizon Mm. the whole time feel even to me feels kind of mythological in the sense of Mm. like you have these forces of nature that you can't control that are also affecting the story. And yeah, so yeah, foreboding. Yeah, there was a a discussion with uh, Desmond Ward and I think. I want to say the New York Times Book Review podcast with Pamela Paul, but I, it could be a totally different. I listened to a lot of interviews with Desmond Ward, so they could just merge <laughs> together in my brain. But she was talking about how she finds her career almost surreal and incredible because she's writing about mm. a young black girl living in the South who is pregnant and she's not your stereotypical what we have in mind. And she wanted to do that. She wanted to write from perspective that she didn't see in literature. And the very fact she's doing that is kind of revolutionary in many ways. And when she won the last National Book Award, Autumn and I are like in tears on the couch. Like she won her second one. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, because she's writing about characters that we don't really see in American literature as much, or at least not in such a sophisticated and well-rounded way yeah absolutely no I, I i thought it was an incredible book and i'm completely sold on jasmine ward now and i'm gonna have to read all her other books yeah and yeah it's supposed to be i forget what sing and buried sing supposed to be inspired by similarly it's a, i don't it's a travel i don't remember one i don't remember either but i'm sure if we just look like google it you could find it, but I wanted to... Just, you've read Where the Lion Bleeds, right, Autumn? The first one? Yes. Because this is a trilogy set in the same, like, neighborhood. And I wonder what the first mm-hmm. one would be. I, You know, I don't know. That's a good question. Like, they are twin brothers. So it could be... I mean, there's lots of twins in mythology. And one, it is a similar situation where it's like one brother takes one path and one brother takes another path. And they come to completely different ends, I guess, as it were. I don't know. I need to look into that. Apparently, Sing and Buried Sing is in part inspired by William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, oh. which I am not familiar with. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because she talks about Faulkner a lot as well. Well, I was just thinking, and this is just kind of an off-the-cuff thought, but it's like, you know, there are a lot of like ghosts in Southern literature. Southern literature is one of my favorites. And like, I know a lot of people read sing and buried sing and thought it was strange but i never thought it was <laughs> i don't know why and i don't know if it is because like you know i've read a lot of shakespeare and it's very similar in me for me to like othello or wherever where he, like the ghost shows up and there's like ghosts everywhere and like this really weird stuff happening so it's like of course that would happen like that's completely <laughs> logical to me like so it's interesting even like how reading that kind of stuff just changes your perspective about what a plot and what a story can do as well mm, yeah Maybe it's weird. Perhaps people are like more accepting of those kind of abnormality, abnormal things happening in sort of historical literature and by these great people that are lauded already. And then when sort of new people experiment with it, they're like, what is this? And what I think it's interesting, you also have as well, like the tradition of African-American women in magical realism with Toni Morrison and Gloria mm-hmm. Naylor and Zora Neale Hurston. And so I feel like mythology has also directly influenced that as well because of the elements, the types of elements of magical realism in them. Yeah, I um, read so. online um, a sort of 
Essie comparing Beloved to uh, Medea as well. Oh, yes. I don't know. Like, I, I wasn't sure whether they were suggesting that that was, in, like, she was intentionally retelling Medea or if they were just comparing the two. But I was like, oh, now I need to, like, read up on this more. So I don't really have anything to tell you about it other than I just found this the other day and thought, wow, okay. I think it was when I was Googling Desmond Ward's Medea, perhaps, and then that came up and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do more reading. <laughs> Yeah, because there are lots of themes of motherhood and different things. I don't want to give any spoilers, though. There's lots of themes of motherhood in Beloved as well. And we recently talked about that one on the podcast, and I never read it before. And mm-hmm. it was just like, there's so much richness to this text. I need to go read secondary sources on it. Be a proper literary nerd. <laughs> and it, it makes you wonder, like, so we have mythology, and it seems like a base for literature from all different types of places in the world, not just Western literature. Mm. So how far expanding do you think that that foundation is? Is it really just like a foundation of world literature, or is it just for a different strain, a certain strain of world literature, you know, like Western literature or whatever? The thing is, Greek and Roman mythology uh, and their religion and their gods, I mean, there's, there's so many parallels in Egyptian mythology and Assyrian mythology, Persian stuff. Like, I think there's probably similar strands running throughout all modern literature, but they've perhaps seen it as an influence from, like, their country because actually there was the same things kind of going on, like, 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago in different parts of the world. Like, I don't, I don't, as much as I think, like, classical stuff's directly influenced Western literature, I don't think it's unique, if that makes sense. No, yeah, it's like they have different origin stories. So it's like similar stories, but they come from their own different mythology. Yeah, we're always trying to explain the same things through mythology. So quite often similar things come up and similar stories sort of manifest themselves in different cultures. So then you actually probably get like a piece of modern literature um, in Africa and a piece of modern literature in Sweden and they're probably really similar but they're actually inspired by like different traditions but that were kind of the same at the beginning does that make sense yeah so like most mythology has some sort of revenge story yep that kind of thing yeah that's really interesting I, I when I was a teenager being the huge nerd I was I got an encyclopedia of mythology and yes. <laughs> you know it's like like almost like a thousand pages that kind and then I got another one that is of um like names in mythology so if you hear a name you can just look it up or, and stuff um and uh I really love scrolling through that because there are a lot of similar stories because even Dylan my corgi I named after Dylan the Welsh god of the sea who's actually a twin and he's like the dark twin who gets murdered or something not really. Amazing. Maybe I shouldn't have named Dylan after that. <laughs> I had it picked out already. So anyway, he hates the sea as well. So obviously, not many things about that. But yeah, I find it interesting that there's like there's like twins and there's like the dark brother and the light brother, the good brother, quote unquote. And yeah, no, totally. <laughs> Just yeah, I mean, it almost makes it sound boring that it's all the same. <laughs> I think it's. I don't know. I guess it says something about humans. <laughs> I think so. I definitely think so. And one of the things that I'm always astounded by is just like how many thousands of years old it is, but it's still relevant. I guess it goes back to the beginning of our conversation and how I studied it as a kid, but a lot of my friends didn't and they didn't notice a lot of the same things. And I was like, why didn't you study this in your school? Like, well, our school doesn't cover it, you know? 
they used to have, may have Latin often as an option in public schools here in the United States when I think my mom was growing up maybe, but it really went out of favor because they're like, well, it's not useful. Yeah, it must be similar timing because when my um, parents were in secondary school, there was still the option to do Latin, but not anymore really, unless you go to private school in the United Kingdom. Mm. That's really, that's really sad. It is sad. I think it's sad. Because <laughs> then it becomes this exclusive thing as well. Yeah, I think so. Jean, often on your podcast, you talk about wanting to get classics back into public schools and different things. Are there any sort of things like um, programs in the UK that are trying to do that? Yeah, so there are like various sort of like foundations and charities in the UK. I mean, the one that always brings to mind is one called Classics for All, which um, sort of raises funding and schools like apply for this funding to introduce classics in some way or another to their curriculum as like state comprehensive schools in the UK and that can be like across the UK um, and it might not be a full course that you can set a qualification in it might just be like a evening course or like a like sort of once a week type thing um but it's like sort of whatever they can uh sort of fund but it's not the only one there is definitely more and I think there is a bit of like I feel like in sort of my generation of academia and sort of the people that are my supervisors for my PhD, there's like a real interest in getting classics back into school or at least making it accessible so that everybody has an opportunity to study it if they want to. And it's really nice to see. And I do think it's in the public consciousness of like the classics world. Um, I just hope it's also getting out there <laughs> into the real world. <laughs> For people who are interested in learning more about the classics, are there any anthologies or books that you would recommend people start out with? Yeah, so it's diff- I get I get to the point where like I forget what you don't know at the beginning. <laughs> I've had trouble when I've like been trying to teach first and second years at university. I'm like, what do you know already? Oh, nothing. <laughs> of course, I forgot. <laughs> I think. One of the like traditional ones was always Robert Graves's Greek Myths, which is um like quite a few decades old now but it's like a collection of the Greek myths and um, that he rewrote and something similar that's come out is Stephen Fry's Mythos which is kind of being talked about like the new Robert Graves it's like him again collecting together the myths. I always think read myth retellings they're how I got into antiquity like go for it it'll inspire your curiosity to go and check out the originals but if you do want to read original Greek myths, like my go-to recommendation is the Library of Greek Mythology by Apollodorus, which is a Greek text, just collecting together loads of Greek myths, like a little short story collection. And it gives you such an amazing overview. And obviously it is ancient literature. So it's kind of like you're getting this authentic sense of the myths, although they did vary. Um, But I always think that one's like such a good place to start. I'm so glad that people are putting those collections together because I remember having graves one and having that one and reading that one but also um i didn't i missed like norse mythology Mm. like growing up and so neil gaiman just put together like his version of a collected norse mythology Mm. like almost like primer so that you can just read some of the basic myths from norse mythology and i love that like more i guess mythological the different myths from the different places of the world are coming together and we can read them now. Like, so like Egypt and then um, Rick Riordan is now expanding to Asia in his series. So you have an Indian mythology series about a girl. That's so interesting. When I was a kid, I had um, quite a lot of children's books by an author called Jamila Gavin, who uh, like rewrote, rewrote Hindu stories 
um, for children. And I loved reading those. I thought they were really fascinating. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and Roshni Chuksky is is uh, the one that's writing that. And then he also expanded to other, they haven't been released yet, so I'm not sure where they're from, but he's trying to find own voices, authors, so because mm-hmm. he's like, I'm very aware I'm a white dude, so I'm going to yes. ask these women from different places, you know, with ethnicities from different places around the world to write their own histories and mythologies and turn those into stories. So that's pretty cool. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Sounds exciting. I want to hand them to all these, all the kids and be like, here you go. <laughs> go <read."> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny you brought up um, Hindu mythology too, because I just finished the book of M by Payne Shepard. <sighs> Oh, yeah. I've said, I've, lots of people have been talking about that recently. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure what myth exactly it pulls from. I haven't looked. I literally just finished it, so I haven't researched it yet. But it has some sort of like Indian or Hindu mythology in it. And I was, I was like, oh, I didn't even know this existed. I need to go look mm. into this and like find out where the story draws from. Yeah. So it's cool mm. that Raritan's expanding as well. I There was an interview with Peng Shepherd on the the PBS, I think it's the PBS station near Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. And she did an interview with one of the local, I don't know, broadcasters, whatever there and talking about the origins of it. So I think that's pretty cool. It's a great book. I won't, I won't spoil it for Eugene, but it's very it, good. Okay. Yes. I'm like, I, I'm coming away with more reading material <laughs> and expanding beyond the Greeks and Romans, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whatever, whatever Autumn and I are together, like whoever's with us, like, <laughs> Like begins to like cringe backward because all these book recommendations. Yes. Like, okay. Okay. <laughs> Never too many. Don't worry. So well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Jean. We loved having you here. It was great to talk mythology with you. Thanks so much for having me. I've had I've had a blast. <laughs> So everyone, don't forget to go check out part two of this conversation over on Dean's podcast, That's Ain't History. And yeah, we can't wait to keep talking about mythology. So yeah, more ahead of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a lot of fun to get to talk to her about, especially about literary retellings of modern myths or ancient myths. Yes, and that is just, I think, really our jam. And we're always happy to talk about Desmond Ward. I mean, obviously. Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) So you can find Jean's podcast, That's Ancient History, uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And so keep an eye out for the second part of this crossover episode collaboration that we did. It's coming out on September 3rd, or if you're in America, that's Labor Day. And you can hear us talk about uh, the betrayal of women in antiquity and Greek mythology. So that's it for this episode. As Kendra mentioned, be sure to check out the second part of our talk with Jean. You can find Jean on social media at That's Ancient and at Jean's Thoughts. And you can find us at The Reading Women on social media. You can also find us at readingwomenpodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.